Hey, we're going to continue in the book of Mark. We took a couple of weeks off, one for Palm Sunday, one for Easter last week. What a great day we had in the Lord on Easter. It was marvelous. And uh, today we're going to start right at chapter 4 of Mark. We're going to get into what is very likely a very familiar parable. But in my discoveries, studying through this, there's always new light that shines out of God's Word each time you open it up. And I've got a few little nuggets in here that I think may be new to some of you, some surprises, and I think it's going to be practical. So let me begin, first of all, by asking if you have ever told your kids, do you like such and such a food when they've never had it? And they go, yuck. When our kids were little, I used to say, kids, you want to have squid for dinner? And they would all go, oh, no. And I'd say, don't you like squid? No, I don't like squid. How do you know? Have you ever tried it? No. <laughs> well, how do you know you don't like it if you've never tried it? No, we don't like squid. They made it abundantly clear that they do not like squid. And uh, they did not like squid uh, in a box. They would not eat it with a fox. They did not like squid and chocolate cake. They did not like it for goodness sake. And so I would ask them that. Do you want to, if I put chocolate cake with it, would that help? No. So it's easy for some of us to say... These people just don't get it. I mean, if somebody who really likes calamari, for example, would say, these people just don't get it. It's actually quite good, especially if you dip it in the right stuff. And mm. But why don't they think that this thing that I think is good is good? That's what we think. So some people just don't get it. That happened when I was a kid as well. My older sister used to tease me because I did not, I know this is going to come as a shock to you, I used to not like Mexican food when I was growing up. In Arizona, where Mexican food was abundant, but I didn't like it. It was too spicy. And she said, I think you're adopted. <laughs> because everybody in the family loves Mexican food except you. But you'll be happy to know that I have since learned to really appreciate, in fact, it's one of my favorite ethnic cuisines. We love a good Mexican food. Uh, but if you like Mexican food, it's easy for you to say, some people just don't get it, like my family used to say to me. Maybe it's a sport like soccer. I was talking with Tim this morning about Michael and the games that he had. And we used to follow our son around on travel soccer. So we stood at the sidelines for hours and hours, sometimes in other states. And we did a lot of soccer during that season of his life. And for those who don't know about soccer, if you've not played it or if you don't have a family member in it, they would say, never have so many people worked so hard for so few points. You know, they don't get it. It's like back and forth and back and forth. This guy kicks it, this guy kicks it. What is the point? But it's exciting. And if you've ever been in a cliffhanger game and it comes down to penalty shots, oh, man, you'd say, you guys just don't get it because it's an exciting game. But Jesus dealt with some people, too, who just didn't get it. And that's what we're going to learn about in this parable today from Mark chapter 4. These people were not talking about ethnic cuisine or a particular sport. They were talking about this thing that has to do with the kingdom of God and who Jesus is, what we would now consider the gospel, because the whole gospel story is about who Jesus is, what he came to do for us, and that nobody else could do what he did, which means that he is our source of salvation. So there were some people back then that just didn't get it, and Jesus tells a story to help us understand why some people don't get it. The synopsis is this, early in his ministry, and it's important for us to understand that it is early in the ministry because he needed to set some things up as he does so for us very clearly 
to show why certain people throughout his ministry on earth were not going to get it. And at the very end, some people would finally get it. And then even after his resurrection, there would still be some people who would refuse to get it, even though there was abundant evidence. So he's telling this parable about a farmer. It was agricultural. It was something that everybody would have been very familiar with. A lot of the people in those villages would have grown up doing the things he's talking about here. We call it the parable of the soils. I think that's the appropriate title for it because we're really looking at the four types of soil. Sometimes it's listed in different translations as the parable of the sower, but it's really focusing on the soils more than the sower. And uh, the word synoptic comes into play here. Some of you probably taught your friends at the party that I told you to, you know, after Easter to tell them about this. Synoptic means alongside, and there are three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is a separate one from that. And of those three, there's an awful lot of shared material. Clearly, there was some source material that they borrowed from for getting those biographies of Jesus. And this parable shows up in three of the Gospels. It's the synoptics. It is one of three parables, by the way, that show up in those three. And you should know that this specific parable, the one about the soils, is the first. And it's the first for the reason, and we're going to see that. There's a very strong reason why Jesus chose to give this one first. This first parable, we're going to see how Jesus compares his listener to four different his listeners to four different types of soil, and only one of these four is the good soil, the productive soil. That's the fruitful or effective soil, so that the plant comes up out of it and it's going to bear lots of fruit. The other types help us understand why some people just don't get it, and I think we'll be able to apply some of these as cross principles that come into bear in some people in our own lives and in our own circles at work or at home, that if we really love something and we're trying to get it across to them, but they just don't get it, there's some good reasons for that. Here's the setting. Let's look at that. Very first verse. Remember, Mark was the get to the chase, cut to the chase kind of guy. He was the shortest and the action-packed gospel writer, and so he gets it right out in the open here at verse 1. Once again, Jesus began teaching by the lakeshore. That would be Sea of Gennesaret or Lake Galilee or Sea of Galilee, all three, same body of water. A very large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. And then he sat in the boat while all the people remained on shore. Time out. A little parenthetical note here. I have to backtrack all the way until my family visited Washington, D.C. on a little trip. We went out for a national day of prayer and heard, heard uh, James Dobson speak and some other people. That was back when Callie was short enough to actually ride on my shoulders. So that's been a couple of years. And we were there, and we got to visit some of the museums and other things around. And just north of the Capitol building, there's this chamber, which was the old Senate chamber. Now it's basically a museum. People can go in and tour it and look at it. It's a semicircular-shaped building, and it has a curved roof. So it's like half a rotunda. You could just cut that in half if you got that in your mind. And we found out, too, that... Our docent, our guide, was telling us that some of the people would want to listen in to some of the conversations as they're preparing their debates about key contentious issues. And if they could get in just the right spot opposite of the desk where people were whispering, they could listen in to their opponent's conversations because of the acoustics of that dome-shaped roof. Very interesting, is it not? That was pre-Twitter. And they were able to still make good with all this secret information that they got. Then that takes us back to the Sea of Galilee because you should know that there is still a place today in Israel, and it's just south of Capernaum, 
Joey and I got to drive by it. We didn't stop and go out and actually hear the acoustics, but we got to see it. We said, oh, there it is. That's really cool. Because we were heading down to the southern end of the Sea of Galilee where we were going to stay that night. But it's called the Cove of the Sower, and it's the traditional spot, and this is it. You're looking at your screen. The traditional spot that everybody locally says, this is where Jesus told this parable. And you can see the sort of bowl-shaped configuration of this thing. It's like a perfect natural amphitheater. Well, i got to tell you, Jesus kind of had the corner on acoustics. For one thing, he invented them. (laughs) Because we can see in John 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, it's all talking about how Jesus was the agent of creation. He was the one by whom everything was created, we sang about that, and for his pleasure they have been created. So Jesus created everything, including this cove, which was very handy because for him to be in that boat and to have all these people out there on the shore, you could have several hundred people around in that shape, and water is a good carrier too. It would bounce right off that water. He could speak to them without having to really get hoarse and scream at them because they could hear them very clearly. That's where this took place. He taught them by telling them many stories, Mark says in verse 2, in the form of parables, such as this one. Good setup, Mark, right to the point, and he's going to dive in. So let's read through the rest of these verses up through 9, because that's what this crowd would have experienced from Jesus. We can see in 10 that later is when he explains the parable. So all they got was this, and then they were allowed to chew on it for a while. So let's listen to that, starting in verse 3. Listen. He says, or the word in Greek would be hear. Like hear ye, hear ye, when people would come into the courtroom. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Verse 4, as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, so it was shallow. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, And they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they could not or did not bear grain. Still others fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some, how many? A hundred times the amount based on what was sown. And then Jesus says, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let them listen. Interesting, this is one of the little things that I noticed in looking through this particular passage this time. The same word for hear and listen, it's the same word in Greek. So he begins with listen, and he ends with listen or hear and hear. So he bookends it. And he's doing that on purpose because he's trying to show how some people just don't get it because their hearts aren't prepared to listen. They're not open to the words that he's going to be speaking. Later, he's with his disciples and a few others, and if they were like me in high school, I was always afraid to raise my hand and say, teacher, can you explain that? I don't get it. Because it's always, you're always so afraid that people are going to think you're dumb if you don't get it. But I did realize that if I would go up to them and ask them after class and say, on this problem, I'm having a difficult time making my way to the derivation, let's say if it's calculus, And then he would be so glad that I came and spent the extra time to ask him a question and admit that I actually didn't know something. That's kind of what these disciples were doing with Jesus, except it wasn't derivation. It was just, what does the story mean? And so they asked him, can you explain this to us? 
Well, he begins by first telling us the reason for using parables, which is important because it's kind of the, the setup for all the other parables that come, and there are many of them, especially in the book of Matthew. He says in verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God. Boy, if he says secret, we better perk up. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, meaning you folks who are on the inner circle, you're listening, you're paying attention, you're asking for more information. The secret has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. And then he starts quoting. You'll see the little quotation marks that show up. And he says, so that, quote, they may ever be seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, he knows his audience. And I love these little snippets where we get to see Jesus referring to something that his Jewish audience would be aware of, because he's quoting from Isaiah. And if you look at the NIV version of this, it says so in a different tense, but you look down at the footnote at the bottom, it says the Septuagint in Hebrew says it this way, which makes it sound like it has already happened. They've already hardened their hearts. They have already become blinded to the truth. They have already stopped up their ears, and they're not listening very closely. And therefore, Isaiah is saying, God has consequences for you. And where does this show up? It shows up in the commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. That's where Isaiah hears God's voice. It says, whom shall I send? Who shall go before me? And Isaiah is raising his hand. Here am I. Send me. Even though he feels very much like Moses felt and said, I don't know if I can do this or not. And Isaiah said, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. But he says, here am I. If you can use a guy like me, Lord, here I am. And God says, okay, good, I'm going to use you. Now let me tell you what you're, going to spo- what you're supposed to tell Israel. And that's when this comes around. He says, you're supposed to say to Israel, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. This people's heart, referring to Israel, has been calloused or hard. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. So God is pointing through Jesus to a contemporary group in Jesus' time back to Isaiah and saying, I think God still has a word for Israel here. And to anybody who would close our ears to the truth and shut our eyes and be looking at it but not perceiving what's going on, which is giving us a clue about these parables. Jesus wants us to perceive. He wants us to see. He wants us to get it. So he's telling us stories, and he's giving us a clue about why he's using parables so that when we get the parables and they sink in, we get these great light bulb moments and the lightning strikes, and we go, bang, God just whammed me with this one. I can see the truth now. It it becomes so clear. It's contrasts. This is a parable of contrasts, as so many other parables are. He's contrasting people who, like in Israel, See the same things. Have you ever seen some of this in the last two years? People are looking at the very same evidence, and they're coming to wildly different conclusions. I think we could say that maybe we've seen some of that. That was happening back here as well, especially with regard to theological terms and things having to do with the condition of men's heart as they prepare to receive the Messiah. So people's biases will change how they perceive new information and new news. There are certain personality types that always begin with no and negotiate from there. (laughs) They're going to be against everything, and then you have to convince them until finally they go, oh, okay, I see it. Why didn't you tell me that before? (laughs) It's that kind of personality types. There are other people who are much more open to things, and they go, oh, yeah, I can consider that. But some of them are just doing that to get along, and they didn't really get it. 
So they just say it, and it's nice, but then that kind of withers and falls away. So we see all these personality types represented in these four soil types as well. There are some people whose hearts are more conditioned to see things differently because they're trusting in God than others. We see an example of that when Moses was sending out the 12 spies into the promised land. This is going way back into the Wayback Machine. Ten of those spies saw the same things that the other two saw. They saw these great, huge uh, stands of grapes growing all over the place. They had one cluster of grapes that was so large, they reported back, that it took two men to carry them on a pole between the two of them. That's just one cluster. And then they had pomegranates and figs, and it was a man, a land flowing with milk and honey. Some people think that's sort of a poetic way of saying it was so fruitful, and it was wonderful. But the ten also saw that the guys there were also very big, and they had fortified cities with lots of people in them. So they started to feel like, we're like grasshoppers. We feel like grasshoppers, and they thought so too. And so they came back and gave the bad report, but Caleb and Joshua come back, and they're going, yeah, that's a great land. They got great grapes, and we can take it. If God is on our side, we can do it. Let's go, y'all. That was the paraphrased version. But what was different about Joshua and Caleb from the other ten guys? It was the condition of their heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to show us as he taps into the conditions of the soils referring to our hearts. Four types, and we can see that. I'm going to buzz through them here, starting at verse 15. Some people's hearts are like the hard path. Now, they would not have nice uh, bunches of acres with 80 acres divided up into squares like we would see in rural America today. It would follow little donkey paths and be up in the hillside and down over this rocky crag. And so they would have little tiny paths between the wheat fields or the barley fields. And those are the places that would be walked on enough that would get trampled down. And you know what happens when you trample earth down? It doesn't open up enough to be able to get the seeds down in there. So that would be like these paths. And the seed of God's Word is cast there because some of it's going to fall out there because they're not using uh, modern-day machinery that pokes a hole and puts the seed down in there, and it's very precise. He was just casting it, broadcasting it. And immediately, that seed that's lying there saying, eat me, eat me, the bird comes and takes it and gobbles it up and flies away. Let me ask you something, and this is one of those little interpretations, and there are many ways that we could interpret this, and this is a good small group session to sit around and say, How, what are you seeing about some of the hard path for you? What do you think could create somebody's heart to become hard that way. How about being mistreated by somebody? You know what it's like if you've been mistreated? You've been treated unjustly. Maybe somebody said something bad about you behind your back and word gets back to you. And you're thinking, well, how rude. And you just feel bad about that. Or there are people who just tend to walk all over other people to get where they want to get. Well, if they're walking all over you, then you can develop a hardened heart toward that person. And I think that's one time that it shows how it's easy for our hearts to get hard and there's a shell around there, and we don't want to offer forgiveness because we're so consumed with that feeling that we get, and we go right back to that same place every time that person's name is mentioned. That's one way that we can develop the path, the hard path, heart. Soil number two, verses 16 and 17. Some people's hearts are a little bit like those, like those rocky places. Now, Joy and I were in Israel. We walked all over the place. I almost wore out a good pair of walking boots because it's very rocky. And there are some places where the rocks are just under the surface, and so the, the soil is just really shallow. And as you can imagine, even if it tried to send down some roots, if you could send down roots from this little tiny seed, they don't have much depth. 
it's not going to be able to hold on to much, and they don't get a lot of water. And so, yeah, you get some greenery that would start pulling up there, but boy, that scorching sun, and it can get hot in the desert out there, starts beating down on that thing. Man, in just a couple of days, that plant's gone. And that was like that in many places around there. There will also be places where they would remove the rocks and put the rocks over on the boundary markers. And that would be a place where the soil could start to gather and become shallow as well. So some people's hearts are like that. The word starts to take root, but there's some rocky, hard places. And we're going to see another reference to an Old Testament passage that lets me think, I think Jesus is connecting the rocky places with pride very often, as we can see in Israel, and we'll see that in a second. Verses 18 and 19, soil number three. Some people's hearts are like the soil infested with thorns. And worries of life or the deceitfulness of wealth can choke out that plant and make it unfruitful. Um, My wife and I went to stay in New Mexico for a while on one of our many trips out west. Um, This was years ago. My mom was still alive at that time. We were checking on her. And we stayed at my brother-in-law's house in Tucumcari, New Mexico, way out there on the old Route 66. It's like the town that died when I-40 went in. And it's a cute little town, but it's a sad little town. And we were staying in his yard, which was mostly bare earth. And I think he had tried to grow some little patches of grass, but the grass over there has to cling for dear life because the winds blow so much across there. So the grass is just going, I'm trying to grow, but I can't do it. But what really grows well there are tumbleweeds. And I thought, well, I'm going to do my brother-in-law a favor because he's got a lot of tumbleweeds growing out there in his yard, and I'm just going to go out there one morning before the sun comes up because it gets hot when the sun's up, and I'm going to pull these tumbleweeds and pile them in the corner, and he's going to be so glad that he let me stay in his house. And about a half an hour later, I'm pulling on these huge, thick tumbleweeds down there that feel like trees, and we're trying to dig them out, and I'm thinking, what have I done? It's amazing how much soil they can grab a hold of, and how much nutrition they can suck up apart from other plants. And it was that way with the thorns over here. The thorns could just start to overtake a portion of the field until it's very unproductive. And there are some allusions being made, some analogies being made to say there are some things that can creep into our lives too that become like that. It sucks the life out of us to keep us from seeing what's really valuable because we're focusing on these things that are not very valuable. And then verse 20, we get to the good soil. Some people's hearts are like the good soil. These people, quote, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, and some 100 times what was sown. That was enthusiastic. It's so good. I know, it's a little more difficult. It's not like last Sunday when this room was filled with people like that. But you did good. The two of you, you get extra living water points for saying that. So Jesus had said to those who had asked him about the meaning of the parable, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? That's an important statement because it means we really have to understand what he's doing with this parable because it's a parable about parables. That's why it's the most important parable and we need to start with it, which is what Mark does. It helps us understand as well why some people just don't. Get it. Let me get back for a minute. I'm going to start this parable inception for you. It's going to blow your mind. We're going to get back to the squid and chocolate cake analogy real quick because I'm going to order the server to hold the squid, please, and only give us the chocolate cake because I'm going to give this little illustration that's kind of a parable that would be a modern illumination of Jesus' parable about parables. Whoa. 
I mean, this is parable inception. Okay. If you had, by chance, been one of the two people that listened to our podcast this week, my friend Rick, who's in Colorado, and I did this parable on our podcast. You should check it out. It's called Monday Afternoon Theologians. Rick, this is for you. All right. There's a skeptic that would say, come up to you and say, prove to me that chocolate cake is good. And you'd say, do you not care for chocolate cake? Because you're thinking, some people just don't get it. I love chocolate cake. They would say, blech, no, chocolate cake is disgusting. And you would say, well, what if I may, because you're going to be a good question asker, what if I may ask is disgusting to you about chocolate cake? They would say, ah, it's got too much sugar and all these unhealthy things for your body. I would never put that unhealthy garbage into this temple. I would never put that stuff in my body. And you would say, well, I'm curious, do you not personally like the taste of chocolate cake? Oh, I've never tasted it, they would say, and I never will. Like I said, I would never put that garbage in my body. So you, trying to be polite and trying to respond to them, would say, ah, okay, so you have never actually eaten chocolate cake then? That's what I said. Yuck. Never. No. So you would say, okay, I'm just trying to get things straight. Um, I'm trying to be a good listener here. You're asking me to prove to you that chocolate cake is good when you have never tasted chocolate cake, and you say you're not willing to taste it now or in the future? Yeah, that pretty well sums it up. Okay, well, all I can say to you then is, oh, taste and see that chocolate cake is good. You say, wait a minute, should I be offended? Are you making fun of me? No, 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 my friend, I'm only saying that until you're willing to actually taste the cake and consider the evidence that I would like to put forth to you, then there's no real reason for me to put forth that evidence because clearly you have already made up your mind. So the only thing I can say is you got to taste the cake. And you see some of what's going on with what Jesus is doing through this parable? There are some people whose hearts are not prepared enough to be even open to the evidence even though they can see the evidence with their own eyes. And so they're like the rocky soil or the hard path or the thorny. They're just not quite open to that yet. So there's some skeptics and types of soil. Some people just don't get it. There are some who are like the first three types of soil. And so if you were to say to them, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I actually got to say that to a lady. It was after we'd had some coffee in the local Milan Coney Island. And there was a lady and her husband sitting at the booth just by the door. And she was wearing a shirt that said, try God. And I thought, oh, I, I can't not speak to this nice lady. And so I went out there and I said, I love your shirt. I have, and he's the best. She went, yeah. And I said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. <laughs> she said, amen, brother. We were about to have church right there. It's good. But some people, you could say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And they would look at you like, I never will. I have already made up my mind. I am not going to accept any evidence that you have for me. And Jesus ran into that clearly in his day, and we still run into it today. So sometimes we need some preparation for planting. Let me give you a little clue about what they would do for preparation for these fields. They wouldn't have, like I said, these big acreages, farms that are nicely, neatly in rows. They would have stewardships is what they call them, little oikonomoses, and you were the steward, the oikonomos, that would be the manager over this area, and it would be marked with boundaries, either paths or rocks, 
And then you would go out there and you would actually give the landowner a portion of the crop, kind of like sharecropping was in America back in the early days of America's history. And to prepare that land, they would have to go out there sometime probably in about September, and they would start picking through and throwing rocks into the border areas, the boundary areas, to get them out of the way. But they couldn't till the property yet because it was so hard. It was like back in Arizona where I grew up, the earth could get all cracked and parched like you see in Death Valley, pictures of that, and it just looks like it's hard clay because it is. And when the sun bakes it, it cracks, and you could put a seed down in the middle of that crack, but it's not going to do anything because it's just so dry. But the early rainy season would start in about October, November over there, and we call the former rains and the latter rains is what they would call them, or the early and the late rains. So after the first couple of rains, it would soften that soil enough, then they could start removing other things. They would probably have burned off some of the thorns at ground level, controlled burns, small areas, just to get that stuff out of the way because they didn't want all those thorns taken over. And then they would also start to break up the soil. Then they could plow the ground and make it ready for seed. But there's one passage in the Old Testament, this is the one I want to point to, that I think these people, especially some of those who are asking Jesus, what does this parable mean? I think they would have connected with this. It's in God's Word to Judah and Jerusalem. Mark has been doing a great job months ago in helping walk us through a lot of the Old Testament history stuff. This would be the southern kingdom, and it was just before Babylon was going to come and finally wipe them out and finish the job because the top ten were already gone, ten tribes, and then they were going to carry them off into exile, into Babylon. So this is word from God through the prophet Jeremiah to Israel. He says, wake up, which comes at a good time at about 10 minutes until 12 in a sermon. He says, wake up and get your act together or else. And here's that passage. He says, plow up the hard ground of your hearts, Jeremiah 4, 3 and 4. Plow up the hard ground of your hearts. Don't waste your good seed among thorns, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Surrender your pride and power. Now, if you line those three things up with these three kinds of soil, the pride falls into the one that matches the rocks. And I think that sometimes our pride can become so hard that you just can't break it up, and it needs to be softened, and you need to soften the heart enough to say, I'm going to set my pride aside and understand that God can teach me something. I'm open to this word from him. Please share with me what I need to hear, God, so that I can join you in whatever it is you're asking me to do. Now, how do we prepare our own soil? If we find that God is meeting us where we are, and he says, you know, you got a few thorns in your life. you got a few rocks you need to get rid of. You're a little bit like that hard path in a couple of areas. What can you do to become that good soil again and start opening yourself up? Well, I just happen to have some suggestions. First of all, forgive those who have trampled on you, causing your heart to be like that hard path. Jesus did an awful lot of teaching about forgiveness. And sometimes we think we've forgiven somebody and we think we've let go of that desire to hurt back that desire for retaliation, but we get right back into another situation with that same person, bang, we're right back to those same feelings, and we feel like, no, I don't think I've really let go of it altogether. I just cast the fishing pole out, but I keep reeling it back in again. Sometimes God says, you need to cut the line and let it go. Move on. I'll take care of the vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's not your job. And you're not supposed to say, yes, but I'm supposed to be about my father's business. That's out of context. That's not what I mean by that. And then also digging out the rocks. We need to dig out some rocks to keep our soil from being shallow. We need to dig those rocks out. 
pull out our pride, move it over onto the side of our heart and realize that the real boundary there means that God owns all of this. He owns all of me and all of my heart. You want to allow God to get deep into your heart and you need to get past that shallowness. Sometimes the shallowness can be because we're just focusing on things that are minor and we're making them major. And sometimes that kind of shallowness kind of matches that whole shallow soil too. And then we got to cut down some thorns, things that choke out the word that leads to a fruitful life. Worries of this life, boy, isn't it easy to tell other people, you need to stop worrying so much than it is to actually stop worrying so much? It's a tough one, but we need to. We need to start letting go of those things that are continued anxiety givers in our life, those worries. And we need to get rid of that false promise that God will bless everyone abundantly, physically and monetarily, if they're just obeying my will. It's a false promise. That's not true. And if we're believing that and then something goes wrong or some financial crisis comes our way, then suddenly our theology is messed up. That's because it's messed up theology. It needs to get messed up. We need to get rid of that. We need to get that thorn right out of there. And there's another false teaching that says, basically, you get enough money because God is blessing you with this money or this prestige or the great job or whatever it is you think. If he's blessing you, then those things are going to be abundant. He's just going to give you this abundant life, but it's not abundant spiritually. People misinterpret that as being abundant materially and that that will bring you satisfaction. Wrong. Some of the most miserable people I know are abundantly blessed materially, but they're not satisfied because Jesus is the only source of ultimate satisfaction for every one of us. So through this parable, Jesus is getting ready to launch his new kingdom, and he's asking people who are going to become a part of his team to say, are your hearts the good soil? Are you open? Do you want to hear what I'm going to start teaching you through these parables? Because if you are, I need a lot of people to join me on my mission. And if you get the parables, you can join me. You can be a part of my team because we're going to change the world with the kingdom of God. But your hearts have to be open to what I'm going to be sharing with you. And then one final insight, and this is great. It's another one of those mind blowers. Yes, the word of God is the seed in this parable. But when you think about John's gospel... Jesus is the Word. So if we're preparing our hearts to receive the words in the inspired Word of God through the Bible, then we'll be open to the Word, and He's going to inhabit that space that we've given for Him. He owns the field. He's going to make us fruitful. Look what Paul says in his word to the Ephesians. I'm going to start with verse 16, but you're going to see the key verse in verse 17 here. He says, I pray that from His glorious, unlimited resources... He, meaning God, will empower you with inner strength through His Spirit, which shows us that it's all coming from Him. We're not manufacturing it. We can't make any good thing happen. It's all from God. And then the key verse, 17, Christ will make His home in your hearts as you trust in Him. So if we've got good soil, Christ is the one who's going to start growing out of that. The character qualities of Christ himself will be the fruit that's born out of your heart. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And the keep is a good word there because it means continually. It will continually keep you strong as you continue to open yourself up to the word. And then he goes on. Let me finish this because it's kind of a benediction and it wraps it all up. Paul's good at tying the bow on the gift. And he wraps it up with this. He says, and may you have the power to understand 
which is what Jesus was asking them to do, have the power to understand these parables. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. And it is too great to fully understand. I like this African phrase that would say, Oh, it's too wonderful for me. <laughs> and then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Can you imagine being full to overflowing with all the life and power that comes from God? That's what he offers to those who will prepare the soil, open up to the seed of God's word, and allow Jesus Christ to be what grows out of our hearts. So let me just ask this, just in case there's anybody who has not taken that step of faith to say, yes, I want to be Christ follower. I want to follow Jesus Christ. I want to open my heart to that. Then if God is getting your attention, wherever you might be, and if he's softening your heart, then just maybe, hopefully, you would be receptive to this when I read Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't experience him Intellectually, it's got to be a step of faith. He'll provide lots of affirmation once you get there. And yes, it's up to us to try to give as much evidence as we can. And there's abundant evidence, but you've got to open yourself up to the evidence. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Better than chocolate cake, I promise. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful that you are so patient. Your patience was demonstrated in Jesus who continually worked with those people he had around him, teaching them slowly and surely and methodically and intentionally through these parables. And I pray that we would be intentionally open so that we can become the good soil as well because we want you to be planted deeply in our hearts, into the field of our heart, and we want Jesus Christ to grow there and to grow so fruitfully that when people see Everything that comes out of us, they say, wow, that's an awful lot like Jesus Christ. That sure looks like Jesus' character qualities to me. And I know that we can't do that in our own strength, which is why you showed us that all that power comes through you and your Holy Spirit, empowering us to do everything, not only in our salvation, but also in the sanctification process that you have that lasts our lifetime. And I'm grateful that you never, ever, ever give up on us. And that you who began that good work in us by, show, by sowing that seed of truth when we first got it will be faithful to complete that all the way up until the day we see Christ Jesus again. And I pray in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.